Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, I'm sorry, I have no idea what it sounds like I'm talking, I'm talking about here. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. If you've taken one before and it's fallen apart, take another one. We've got plenty. Uh, on all the uh, communion tables throughout the room, we have these things look like this. They're sermon notes. On the inside, you'll get some things to reflect on what we talk about today, some questions to go back and talk about what we talked about today, and there's some announcements on the back. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then events in version and will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. This is out of the NIV, and it says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live with an understanding of who you are and what you call us into. That when we look at things around our lives and we claim that they are meaningless, we could then take a step back and trust in who you are. That you show us what the meaning can be in all the things that we go through. That we'd be a people who understand your great gift to us and what we call the good news of the gospel. And that we'd live that out in all ways as a reflection of what you have first done and how you rescued us. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So we are entering the second half, or really the last third, of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are newer to Element, up until June this year, we did 20 weeks in this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And I took a break for the summer because everybody you know, goes in and out throughout the summer just like I do. And I wanted to kind of come back so we could just do this all together as a people. Now what I am going to do this morning is I'm going to kind of sum up those first seven chapters. It doesn't mean that if you're here those 20 weeks, it's like, what? Why did he talk so long for all those. You can go back and listen to them. I'm just going to kind of sum up as much as I could for you. Uh, This isn't going to be like the book of Acts where four and a half years ago we went through the book of Acts part one up to chapter 12 and I said we're going to finish the second part of it and we haven't done it yet. Next year. Ah, we're actually going to go back and finish it. It'll be great. You can look at the Apostle Paul and how we always think about all the great things that Paul did, and yet he got beat up almost every single day. He's a trooper, I'm just telling you. Anyway, so we're going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes over the next 12 weeks. Again, I'm going to start with the refresher, then, then we'll jump into the rest of it. This is like the previous Leon. So Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2 at the NIV say this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is... Is meaningless. So it's a very positive and encouraging book, as you can tell. Uh, a lot of people have done great damage to the book of Ecclesiastes because they don't understand what Solomon is trying to do, how he's trying to get us to ask questions. It's actually a very philosophical book. Now, there are certain phrases that will come up over and over in the book, and I'm going to give you those first four as we start this morning. The first word that you see is this word that is called meaningless. Whenever the author really doesn't know what to do or what to say, he throws in a, this is meaningless, this too is meaningless. Now, this is the, the Hebrew word called havel. And what this means is a mist or a vapor. The English Standard Version will translate that as vanity, but it's really a mist. It looks like this. It's like you spray, and I can't, I can't get it back in the bottle. I can't do anything with this except walk through it and maybe feel a little bit cooler. If it gets hot, gets hot in the room, I'll be like, I don't know, it's meaningless. But, but that's all that it is. You can't get it back in the bottle. You can't do anything with it. It's this mist. It's, it's this vapor. And so the author will get you to a place where you feel very depressed because everything he says in life without God is meaningless. It's all vapor. And what that would mean is like um, your 401k, all the money you've saved. 
It's vapor because one day you're gone and what does that do for you anymore? It doesn't really do anything. That car you really wanted, I bought an Audi R8 V12. Oh, this one's broken. This, this sprayer. There we go. All right, Audi R8. There you go, right? I don't even know what that means. Doesn't matter. Somebody got one. Vapor, all right? Uh, I bought a boat, right? It's, I, I bought a boat. It is in the shop and broken all summer because I don't know how to change oil like an idiot, right? So it's meaningless. Uh, your concert tickets, your intelligence, your learning, your education, your thoughts, having all the furniture in your brain arranged in such a way that you can navigate the maze that is your mind, meaningless. That's what he says. He, this is what Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. Oh, it's such a bummer. It's such a bummer. He'll go on to say that people who come after you, after you die, your memory, the memory of you is going to start to fade. And so your life becomes this. Even the person you pledge your I do to, one day one of you will die and the other one will stand over the other person's grave. And it even looks like that is vapor. It's meaningless. Feel a little depressed? That's where he wants you. And then the next phrase he uses is this, under the sun. Sometimes this is translated as under the heavens. It's a euphemism for this life. It means the totality from when you are born to when you are die, when you die, everything happens to us under the sun. The realm that we create, our world around us, everything Solomon talks about in this book is going to be in the realm of the created, what we do, which is meant to leave the open hanging question, but what does God do? And so the writer will use this phrase when he's referring to that which exists in time, which is our time. All that is temporary. All that's about us. The teacher in the book is trying to create this dissonance. And it's like, oh, what do I do with that? That we'd be uncomfortable enough to learn and to ask the same questions he's asking and look for the answers that only God can provide. The teacher creates that space to be open to the truth that we haven't yet grasped. And then he will move on to this other phrase. That is, yet when I surveyed. And you'll see it's like in chapter 2, verse 11. And it's something that starts to come up when the teacher says that he acquired and did all of these things. Yet when I surveyed, yet when I looked at what comes beyond the sun, when I surveyed all that my hands have done. And what the teacher will do with like this brutal self-examination is try to get you to see what life without God is actually like. This is why we call the series we're doing the existential hangover. Because existential relates to existence. And a hangover is the next day when you've got a headache because you're trying to deal with this thing. Because we're asking all the questions about life, but we can't find the answer. So we have this headache, the existential hangover. Because the big question of the book of Ecclesiastes is, now what? It's, it's like, I had it all, I did it all, I bought it all, I accomplished it all, I built it all, I won it all, and now what? Every dream you had for your life, you have accomplished. It has come to fruition, and you wake up the next morning, and you're still you. Now what? Now what do you do with yourself? The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes reminds you over and over he had everything in the realm of the created. And he says, and now I want to tell you what exists beyond the realm of what we create, beyond under the sun, and asks us the questions to get us to move there. Yet when I surveyed, all that my hands had done. And then he will talk about God. God. The teacher, when he speaks about God, speaks of him as one who was uncreated. God is not bound under the sun. With God, there is no beginning, middle, middle or end. God is not trapped in time. With God, there is no vapor. There is no vapor. So the book of Ecclesiastes keeps coming back to man's pursuit of life apart from God and how when we live our lives apart from God, it always devolves into meaninglessness while we try to claim that our lives actually have meaning. 
So the teacher will say, just stop with all the theatrics. Stop with all the things that you're running after and trying to, trying to get because you know it's vapor. You know that it is. You're not as smart as you think you are or as smart as you want everyone else to think you are. You're not as put together as you want everyone else to think you are. You're a hot mess. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay because that's when God is going to do his work in you. We move to a place of humbleness and trust him. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 where we ended up... Uh, Right before summer ended, uh, at the end of chapter 7, you read these words, chapter 7, verse 29. See this alone, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That's kind of the theme of Ecclesiastes. They're trying to find all these schemes so we don't really need to surrender to God in our lives. Uh, This can be how we give our time, our money, our energy. It could be our theology. It could be how some people like to center their theology on rapture books about, I'm going to get out of here one day and the world's going to burn. Then we think we don't have to do anything to help the world around us because, hey, it's not my home. I'm out of here. I can just let it burn. And that's not ever what God intended for his people to be like. It helps when we, when we think of the, the world as, you know, being only under the sun and we get to get out of it. It helps us not to be the people that God calls us to be in the world. Help, I guess, isn't the right word for that. It, it has us not be the God people, people God calls to be in the world. Anyway, uh, and, it's, and it's a way, really, that, that all the people, not just atheists, but religious people, will find ways not to have to surrender all that we are to God in our lives. Because we'll find ways to look and just say, oh, no, 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 my life is just about getting out of here. It's not about this place. And Solomon will say it. There are these schemes that we get involved in. And those schemes don't change us for long. But God will come and change us forever. And Ecclesiastes 7.25, it really sums up all those first seven chapters. And he says this. So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. He says, I did all these things so you don't have to. So trust me in this. And unfortunately, most of us run our lives seeking out you know, madness and folly and wickedness. And so he'll go into chapter 8 now to kind of bring us back together and take us back to the idea of wisdom. Chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So again, he comes back to being wise. He's talking about all the knowledge that we have in our lives, and it's meant to move us to a place of wisdom. Now, in the book of Proverbs last year, I told you, you can boil all wisdom down into two essential types of wisdom. The first one is false wisdom. False wisdom centers itself upon us and all the things that we think we know. False wisdom leads to pride and sin and chaos. You probably met people like this in your life who have gone through so many different things in their life and they've never learned anything from them, but they just keep going through the same old things and then they can't stop talking about all the things that they've been through. It's like, oh my goodness, I wish you would learn something from all that stuff. If you don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. You're welcome. All right. Uh, The other side of this is true wisdom. True wisdom. And what this is, we've gone through things in our lives, but it brings us to a place of humbleness where we trust God with our lives. And it causes humility and unity, and it brings about good deeds and the forward proclamation of what the good news of the gospel actually is and what God has done. And when you read things in the scripture about loving people and loving your spouse and giving to the work of God, money, time, energy, so on, when we live that out without anything where we want self-recognition, but simply because we love God because he first loved us, well, that's what true wisdom brings. 
And that's how true wisdom begins to live. That we can be a people who, are, who stop being offended by all the morons around us because we realize that we ourselves have been morons. And the only difference between us and anybody else is not that we're better, but that Christ has offered grace to us and we've lived in his humility and it makes us humble. We need wisdom and knowledge to begin to participate in God's work to honor who he is in all things. And those who live in this true wisdom will begin to have attitudes that reflect that wisdom. And Solomon says many times that's going to be reflected on our faces. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Mean, judgmental, busybody, gossiping people tend to wear it on their face, right? A lot of people like that. They look like they smelled something really bad, and they did themselves, right? They, they smelt that thing. It's, it's terrible. Some people have even have this weird persona within Christianity where they say, the more downcast I am, the more holy I must be, so I always have to look sad. I will tell you, when we see Jesus face to face, I expect joy and laughter and hope, not sober-minded self-introspection, because I'm not going to be looking at me anymore. I'm going to be looking at him. Sometimes people will leave Element, and I get emails that, that say things like, uh, you shouldn't laugh in church. You guys laugh too much. And I'm like, where else should you laugh? You know, I, I don't know. I, I received one that said, I, I can't believe some of the things you say up there. And I'm like, me too, okay? I'm trying to change. I really am. I, I, sometimes we have people on staff, and they'll read through my message, and they'll like, I don't think you should say that. And I'm like, great. If you have a question about it, maybe I shouldn't say that. And I'm really trying to get a lot better at the things that I say. Now, should we laugh at God? Never. Never. Should we laugh at ourselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. Too often that we do the opposite. We take ourselves way too seriously and God way too lightly. Why? Because we think we are so important. God is the one that's important. What Jesus has done to rescue us, laughter, joy, hope, our faces and our countenance should begin to reflect the joy of who God is. Now, I'm not saying sadness is never there. And we talked through some things during the miracle series where God takes us through hard times. And those hard times will begin to make us stronger. But so does joy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for all of you. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Wisdom will move us through things in humility, and that brings joy, and that will make us strong. And here's the crazy thing in our culture today. People today in our world, they want joy. They want to live in that joy, but there is no joy without wisdom. And the scriptures teach us that there's no real wisdom without Jesus. And so Solomon is going to take this wisdom, and he's going to apply it to our submission to authority. He's done to a lot of other things. He's going to move into the place of that submission to authority. He's going to talk about kings. And I know that sounds uh, kind of odd to us because we don't live in a kingdom today. So I'm going to try and make it make some sense and make some parallels. Ecclesiastes 8.1 is, you know, that's it's kind of where we come in and he moves all the stuff he's talked about into different kind of practical ways to begin to live some of this stuff out. Again, he says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So in chapter 7, you're supposed to see the things that are within our control. You don't have to w- live in wickedness and madness and folly. And chapter 8 is going to move you to some things that are beyond our control. You will have people in your life who have authority over you. How do you begin? to live in that. So he talks about kings and he will say, you know, who is like the wise? It means really who is wise? Who has the skill to interpret certain things? Many commentators think that the rhetorical answer to this is no one because Solomon has really been pretty negative up to this point. The trouble with that is the second half of chapter 8 verse 1 is so positive. 
It's so positive. It's like, you know, it changes a person's countenance. You know, why would Solomon say that if nobody in the world is wise? So there must be at least some people who have some wisdom. It's not that everybody is, and a lot of people think they're wise, aren't really that wise. But Solomon will say in Ecclesiastes 7.28, it's like one man in a thousand. That's, that's what it is. And he also says, we're not going to find a lot of people who can help us interpret things correctly because they don't live in that same wisdom. I mean, how hard is it to understand certain things in the Bible or the book of Ecclesiastes? Think about how hard it is to explain the providence of God in our own lives. Maybe some places where uh, we've had some crooked things and God has straightened them, or maybe we're walking a straight path and God has brought us in a, in a crooked motion to teach us so we learn some things. Or questions like, is suffering in my life a sign of God's judgment, or is it a call to repentance, or is it an opportunity for God's grace and thus a test of my faith? Those are all things Solomon has talked about. So Solomon's going to go into this idea, what does wisdom look like when we really live it out with people who have authority over us? It's going to be very practical, okay? Chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but this is written in a way that directly references life in a royal court. It's like you got a job in the royal court. I got a job. It's with the king, and that's you. In our vernacular, what I would say, what Solomon is saying is, be cautious who you obligate yourself to. That's what he's saying. Sometimes there's a reason there's a job opening in a place and it has high turnover because it's a horrible place to work. This could be stretched out further to think of all areas of your life where you know, we say things like, do your homework before you get married. Like, what baggages and carry-ons do you have before you get on that plane called marriage? You know, you got to look at those things and talk about that stuff. Uh, how about a church? What's their vision and values? What do they believe? Our gospel class is eight weeks long because we want you to know fully what we believe as a church. Starts next week week, by the way. There's my plug. All right. Uh, again, you go back to work. You know, how, how, you, I can't tell you how many people I know who jump into jobs and they get them and they hate them because they didn't do any research before they took the job. Nobody's on the same team. Everybody, everybody argues. Uh, I took a job in Iowa when my wife and I first got married. I learned two very valuable things in Iowa. Number one is this. Put your shopping cart away. Okay? That's number one. It could be a blizzard, and those poor people are like, my card's going back. And they would put it back. You live in California. There are no blizzards. Walk that 10 feet and put that cart back. I go into Costco, and I'll just, I'll look for like a, oh, someone, I'll grab the cart, I'll use that cart, I'll bring it back, and I'll put it in the, two birds, one stone. That's number one. It has nothing to do with the message. Okay. Second thing I learned, second thing I learned is don't jump into things without researching. Don't do it. I wanted out of Santa Maria so bad that I jumped at this job, and it turned out my boss threatened to fire me every day because his home life was terrible. He stole money. He lied. After eight months, I went home and said to my wife, we have got to get out of this place. And so she looks around. She's a teacher. She found a teaching job in Arizona. Two weeks later, we packed up. Poor dog, one 6x12 U-Haul, everything we own, and we moved to Arizona. So we just jumped into something else. I don't know if that was wise, but, but that's, that's what we did. And I still sometimes have qualms about it, and I think about it, because Solomon says your promise is a sacred obligation. And so I, you know, you got to think about that. What do we commit ourselves to and pledge ourselves to? Every year, our church signs a budget. The, the board comes up with it. We present it to you. Have you guys give us feedback. The board votes on it, and we have this budget. Do we follow through? Husbands and wives get married. Do you follow through loving one another and giving to one another? What job? You know, do you follow through at your job? What he's saying is be careful what organization you back. 
before you pledge yourself and vow to it. But once you do make a vow to an organization or something like that, the truth is you are going to get frustrated, usually with people, but you are going to get frustrated. How do you deal with it? Uh, Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So in any organization, including a kingdom, who do people get tired of the most or the fastest? The boss, right? The guy in charge. It's that guy's fault. Who hates your boss? Don't raise your hand. Just in case they're here. You may think they worship at the altar of Satan, but they might come to Element. Okay, so don't, don't raise your hand. All right? <laughs> I get it. A lot of bosses can tend to be clueless at times. Some bosses were really great at a given job, and they're like, oh, you're so great at that. And they promote him to be a boss, and they have no idea what they're doing as a boss. If I say your boss is clueless, does your boss flash before your eyes? That, you, know, you understand that. And so what he's talking about is you've got to carefully select the battles that you are willing to fight for and which battles you walk away from. Uh, don't go around trying to pick fights you can never win, like bad-mouthing your boss. I have a friend whose wife was working for this company, and she hated her boss. And he did something this one day, so she sends this big, long, scathing text to her husband about how terrible her boss was and how dumb he was and all the horrible things that he was doing. And she sends it off. And about two minutes later, her boss comes out of his office and says, Hey, can I talk to you? She goes, Sure. She walks in and he goes, uh, So you just sent me this text. Oh. <laughs> yeah, hula's clueless, right? Right? She got fired. Yeah, that's how it works. The truth is you have to understand every leader has an agenda. Like me, I have an agenda. I want you guys to know Jesus, to walk with him, to understand the gospel and the scriptures in the ways that they were intended. And if you're going to be at Element over you know, years and years, you've got to ask yourself, is that your agenda as well? Because anything you align yourself to, you must ask, what does the leader see as the goal? Can you participate in that? Uh, again, at, at Element, we believe that Jesus is the senior pastor, the, the head shepherd of the church, and all the elders, we're just under-shepherds. We want to stick as close to him as possible. And if you don't like how Element does things, I would say don't join and be you know, divisive about it or troublesome. There are a lot of churches who do things differently than we do, and that's, and that's great. This is why we always try to be clear about our vision and who God calls us to. And we understand it's not for everybody. So if it's not for you, don't declare war on us. Just go somewhere else. <laughs> Not that I want you to. I'd love to love you to stay, but I just want to be honest about that. So let me do this in a way that maybe references our country just a little bit. I'll talk, I'm not going to talk about, I hate politics from the pulpit, right? Uh, but we have a very divisive uh, California legislature, president, Congress today. That's a mild way to put it. So what do you do when leaders make decisions that you disagree with? What Solomon says is, don't be hasty as you leave the presence of the king. That's not saying, oh, you can't leave the presence. It's not saying, you, you know, it's not talking about how fast you run from Sacramento or from Washington, D.C. or anything like that. What Solomon is saying is that in this culture, a hasty departure from the throne room was seen as a sign of disrespect. And so Solomon isn't saying you can't disobey something that's evil. He says how you disobey matters. That's what he says. People who dislike, you know, Trump, Hillary, Gavin Newsom, whatever, are usually disrespectful in how they do it. And believe me, some of the things people in government do are horrible and deplorable. But I still pray for all of them. We do not condone evil actions, but we also don't become evil ourselves in our disrespect. He says, do not take your stand in an evil cause, which is self-explanatory, but it can also mean part of how you take your stand. So this is a lot of good words for us today. He goes on, verse 5, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. 
So you weigh your choices. Uh, you commit yourself to something. You're part of that, and you see new, need for improvement. So what do you do? Well, you don't just complain because you don't like how something's said or done. It is always easier to be a referee than a player. Referees all, you know, you, you did it wrong. A player's actually got to make the shot. I love how Pete Newman, when we were doing Planting Roots, talked about element and all this. He, he goes, it's like a home, and we're like a family. You take care of your home because we're a family. And that's really what it is. You know, we're not supposed to be consumers. We're meant to be people who are a family, who, who do things together. And so if you walk around element and you see certain things that need to be done, maybe God is leading you to do that thing. Mowing the lawn. Not that our lawn's fake and we have dirt. and Rudy mows the dirt once a year. But, you know, some, if you see something like that or, or oh, man, the kid's room's dirty. Well, Maybe you could help clean up. You walk in and the greeters are all, good morning. It's like, oh, those greeters, they look so dour-faced. No one said hi to me. You could be a greeter. You'd be like, hi, and smile. You could do that. Imagine it, right? Maybe sometimes when you see a need, it's because God is calling you to make a difference in that need, that you can do something to help it. Changing doesn't always come by, by criticizing people. I think it comes by doing something to fix it. And this is what Solomon's kind of talks, talking about. You know, for me personally, I love going to a church where the preacher says everything I agree with. Because I'm the preacher. Anyway, that's a joke. Uh, on a larger scale, cultural context, before you go in and make this plan and fight for a just cause, be wise putting together what that plan looks like, how you'll carry it out so it is honorable. See, again, it's very practical. I always go back to Martin Luther King and how he involves himself in the civil rights movement because there were some unjust laws on the books. And I've quoted this before, but it's so good to do so again because I think this is how you do that. This is what Martin Luther King says. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation, but we will not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationists. To our most bitter opponents, we say we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. Throw us in jail, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us, and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. The great military leaders of the past have gone, and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. May we solemnly realize that we shall never be sons of our Heavenly Father until we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as He did for us. Wow! Says it so much better. You should listen to the speech online. Sounds so much better than me when I do it. But is that how most people disagree today? No, we disagree with violence and hatred and vehemence. And Solomon says, that's evil. And sometimes you will go and you'll get a good plan and you'll want to go in and make a difference and do it in the right way. And sometimes it goes in a way that you don't intend because things are beyond our control. Verses 7 and 8, he says, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, that means the wind, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, no will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. When we follow Jesus, we will always run up against what is called earthly wisdom, false wisdom. It's going to be counter to what Jesus calls us to in our lives. The troubles and frustrations of life. Solomon says they are many. He talks about that a lot. We do not know what the future brings, but we know who holds the future. We don't, we don't know when death is coming for us. We can't anticipate certain things. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, right? But it didn't stop the movement because it was bigger than him. 
but it still goes into what Solomon talks about. And he kind of rounds this out like this in verse 9. All this I observe while I apply my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. One man in authority hurting another. Those with power inflicting it on people who had no power. So what do we do about it? Well, you go to the answer that Solomon's looking for, and the answer is first, second, third, fourth, fifth to a hundred. It's Jesus. That's, that's the answer. We look at him and what he did to rest. All the questions Solomon has are really, in the end, answered in the person of Jesus. Jesus stood for righteousness and truth in a way that brought change that has been affecting the world for 2,000 years. Jesus was murdered by man who had power over man to his hurt. And this is what the beauty of the gospel is, though. What everybody thought was defeat when Jesus died, when man had power over man to his hurt, was actually our greatest victory. When Jesus died, he died for our sin. Yes, people killed him, but he willingly died for the sin that separated us from God and us from one another. He rises from the grave to bring us to life. That's that's the gospel. And how do we begin to live in a world of injustice? We focus our lives first on what the gospel is. By understanding what Jesus did to rescue us. Jesus, in calling people to repentance, provides the way for that repentance by his death and his resurrection. And that means we can face people in authority with grace and peace and truth as well. Because our lives aren't focused on those people. It's focused first upon Jesus and what he did. All that Solomon seems to look at and starts to despair over can actually be ways for us to begin to share the good news of the gospel in very practical ways, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter who is in authority over us. Now, going back to this idea of how godly wisdom makes a difference in how we look and in our demeanor and what we go through, it is very easy, I think, in our culture today to get a little downtrodden, to feel like, you know, all these people are doing all these things and it's all against us and what are we supposed to do? Well, first off, again, we have our focus on what the gospel actually is, God's rescue of us. And if you look at a lot of people who have a proud, stern demeanor, a lot of times they look a little irritated, like Solomon calls it, hardness of his face. The gospel is so supposed to change us as a people, not that we can't get downtrodden or feel bad at times, but wisdom makes his face shine. It's that our demeanor begins to change because it's not focused on these circumstances or who is in authority other than God himself. The psalm writer says this, Psalm 34, verse 5, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, it's a metaphor, but I also think it's, it's a bit of reality. True wisdom will bring a joy in our lives that changes everything, including our appearance in the midst of struggle. And back in 2008, there's a guy named Matthew Paris, and he wrote this article for the Times in the UK. The article is titled, Why African Needs God. Now, Paris is a committed and avowed atheist, and yet he writes this article, Why Africa Needs God. He grows up in this place called Malawi, and he talks about Malawi and all the other countries that are all across Africa when he was growing up, and how Christian missionaries made a difference in the things that he saw and did. Now, he keeps reminding you, I'm an atheist the whole time, but it's, it's really almost a proclamation of what Christianity can do in people's lives. But uh, he, he writes this, The Christians were different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness a curiosity and engagement with the world. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes. Why? Because when you focus on the gospel, not upon circumstance, not upon who's an authority over you, but the gospel itself, it changes how we interact with authorities. It changes how we interact with all of our circumstances. Biblical wisdom centered in Christ does bring transformation. 
And that then makes a difference in our witness as we show people who Jesus is. It makes a difference in our relationships. And instead of going around grumpy all the time, not, you can't, not that you can't be grumpy, wake up on the wrong side of the bed one of these days, but wise people will end up having this inner joy that radiates beyond us because it's not focused on us, it's focused on him. You ever met like an older believer who just has this focus on Jesus that just radiates out in their life and you're just like, oh my goodness, one day I want that to be me. I know it's not me now, but one day I'd love to be that just so focused on the goodness and the goodness of the gospel. So really kind of a good question is, how is God making your demeanor? How, how is your focus on the gospel making your life shine? And yes, we do work for progress in the world, but we should also ask God for greater wisdom and growing in joy because that's going to be part of our witness to the world around us. We are even told in Deuteronomy 6.25 that God's face shines upon us. I think when we understand His grace, our own faces come back and begin to shine with that wisdom that the gospel brings, the understanding of His great rescue of us, that no matter what comes our way, this is where our life rests. This is our foundation. It is not meaningless. It is not vapor. It is solid because of what Christ has done to rescue us. And when we are there, it doesn't matter what authorities are over us. I mean, it matters, but you know what I mean, right? It doesn't matter because that is where our foundation lies. And that is how we can live out in this world in ways that reflect who he is, no matter what happens around us. This is one of the reasons that Element, every week we take you to the place of communion, where we encourage you to break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice to remind us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because this, the gospel, what Christ did to rescue us, is the foundation for everything else that comes in our lives. And we must always come back to that understanding. Because out of that is going to come what everything else happens in our lives and how we react to everything else. Our God has rescued us. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. Our God has proven himself to be the one who is redeeming and rescuing because he is our great rescuer. And that's what we remember in communion. So the band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. You might be in a place today where you are going through some tough circumstances. Maybe you have a horrible boss, or you know, maybe, maybe you are the boss, and you're like, I'm a terrible boss. <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you want someone to pray for you in the midst of that, whatever it is. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to begin to talk through some of those things with you about what it means to truly rest and center our lives in who Jesus himself is. Did you just squirt me? <laughs> it's meaningless. <laughs> he sprayed my bottle. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, in, in the midst of that, ha- have them pray for you in your understanding of, of how to either be a better boss or a better employee or, you know, how we interact in the midst of all the places of people in authority over us in ways that reference the good news and the grace of what God has done to rescue us. Because in the end, we have one ultimate authority, and it is Jesus himself. And so we trust him in all the places that he has led us. Uh, even sometimes in the dumb decisions that we have made, we trust him as he walks us through those places to grow us deeper in grace and hope and who he is. Because again, he is good. He is good. Uh, there are offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us giving this part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, there's some food outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Maybe start to walk through some of uh, the sermon note questions with one another this week. Now, a- ask some questions about you know, authority and-, and how you react when you're under authority. Do you always chafe against it? Or do you first understand God's good news given to you so that you can step into those hard places and begin to live differently 
in the midst because your focus is where it is meant to be. Again, Solomon goes through and asks all these questions and talks about all these things, and it's meant to make us on the backside go, but yeah, what is the answer to all this? Solomon writes before Jesus came. Everything he is looking for finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And that's why I love Ecclesiastes, because it asks so many questions that our culture does today. And the same answer that Solomon's going to get, you know, a thousand years after he writes this, is the same answer that we get. Jesus, his rescue and redemption of us. So let's be a people who live in the great good news of what he has done to rescue us, because that will change how we interact in everything else. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that in very practical ways that we'd be a people who understand what the gospel is, your rescue, your death, your resurrection for us. And that we would then begin to live out the great results of the gospel and how we interact with those in authority around us and ultimately how we love and worship you that our lives and our countenances would begin to change because we are not consumed with ourselves, but we are so consumed with your all-encompassing grace and mercy. Have us be those who are completely undone and then rebuilt by you that we get to be made new, that we get to be born again as a people who sit squarely under your grace and your authority. And that by understanding that, it would change everything else in our lives. Thank you for your grace in rescuing us. Teach us how to live this out in practical ways in all that we come into contact with. And we ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.